Hi, everyone. Before we start our regular show, I wanted to let you know that Nourished on the Run, our monthly segment with dietitian Ellie Kempton, is at the end of this podcast. And Ellie and I are going to be talking all about regulating blood sugar. So stay tuned after we talk about the final finish line. Welcome to Many Happy Miles, a podcast that celebrates all type of forward movement, whether it's a CrossFit class or running underneath a parachute in an elementary school gym class. We're here to say yay to it all and bring on guests to inspire you to move with joy. I'm Dimity McDowell, co-founder of Another Mother Runner, and today we are continuing our series called The Final Finish Line, four podcasts devoted to the time when running is no longer an option for your body. Last week, in our first episode, we talked to Stacey Bruce, who is coming to terms with the fact that, as she says, it's time to listen to her body. That perspective is a perfect segue to today's guests, Dr. Dan Meyer and Gretchen Gibson. Dr. Meyer is an orthopedic surgeon at the Crystal Creek Orthopedic Center in Akron, Ohio, and Gretchen is a runner and one of his patients. I heard about Dr. Meyer when I was interviewing Gretchen for my column for Women's Running. She mentioned that the doctor who replaced her knee told her she needed to start thinking about working her passion for running into something else so that when the time came, she was ready. I've interviewed plenty of medical experts about injuries before, but I never heard that advice, and I really appreciated it. Turns out his compassionate perspective comes in part from his own experiences with being sidelined from running himself. Gretchen lives in Dover, Ohio, is a mother of five. She's got a beautifully blended family, and she works in administration. She's run 15 half marathons and two marathons. And best of all, she got a COVID puppy named Miles, who is now three, and has run two half marathons with her. Dr. Meyer has two young daughters and is married to a physical therapist who is also a runner. So he gets running inside and out. I'm thrilled that both of them are joining us today. So welcome, you guys. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So Gretchen, let's start with you. Why and when did you start running? Oh, gosh. So I started running when my daughter was just about to turn two. So about 13 years ago, Uh, she hadn't been sleeping for the first two years of her life. And I had an abundant amount of energy once I got like three hours of sleep. (laughs) So it just, it just became an outlet to grow and push myself a little further since I felt she had broken me completely down and then got to build me back up. Nice, nice. And Dan, um, can I call you Dan or do you prefer Dr. Meyer? Please, no. Dan is perfectly fine. Yeah, no, I tell all my patients to call me Dan. <laughs> Good. Um, Dan, what about you? When did you start running? I uh, I had to run during high school and college soccer, but I hated it. I didn't enjoy running. Um, and I've known my wife since we were in high school and she's always been a runner. And she local in Boston and you name it. So I was always intrigued and jealous and didn't understand why. And it was a big paradigm. And I would run, but I wouldn't run as my main workout, you know, throughout the week. And then I had some shoulder issues during my training when I was in residency and stuff in Virginia. And I, I couldn't do my regular uh, lifting and hits workouts because of my shoulders. So I had to pick up running. And I kind of latched on with my wife uh, before we had kids. And it just became an addiction of uh, of running. And so the whole year, I, I couldn't do much besides run. And we were in Virginia, trails and beautiful scenery. And it was just kind of like a, wow, 
And lo and behold, we have the same trails and the same scenery here in Ohio. It just right next door. I just never used it. So I kind of took my wife's passion and started doing it myself. And so I, I want to say 15 years ago is when I started really running. Mm-hmm. And I was doing a mixture of roads and trails, but I really became in love with the trails more than the roads. And I didn't ask earlier about your race experience, which is why I didn't put that in there. Were you a racer or did you just, or did you prefer, or do you prefer to run? I think my initial answer is I prefer to run and mainly trail runs because a two hour trail run for me is an escape from life. And that's my true passion. Um, I ran half, I, I ran a full, actually the, the morning after my daughter was born that night, emergently had a emergency C-section my wife did. So I slept in the hospital in downtown Akron where my wife had our first child and walked to the race line and ran my first marathon the day after my daughter was born. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> not really playing that way, but it worked out great. Yeah, obviously your wife was a runner because I don't know many wives who would be like, yeah, just go on and head out. <laughs> yeah. awesome. awesome. She was so happy that I was enjoying running. She would have been mad if I didn't run. You know? Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Cool. Well, so in Gretchen and the facts that I'm going to pull out here, I may be wrong about because I'm going off of notes that like I may not have said. I haven't fact checked it yet. So I have you, Gretchen, in December of 2021, tearing your meniscus when you're running with miles. And that was the beginning of a cascade of injuries. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. That's absolutely correct. Okay. So talk us through that timeline a little bit. So it was December 1st at like five something in the morning. I was out for like a, my three mile run before work. And we got about a half mile from the house when it kind of like popped and I couldn't go forward anymore. So I turned us around and he kept looking up at me like, what are we doing, mom? Why, Why aren't we, why aren't we going on? This isn't what we do. And hobbled back into the house and tearily climbed my way up the stairs and woke up my husband and he helped me get in the shower. And then it was just a matter of waiting to get to the Crystal Clinic has a quick care center. So it was waiting for that that time to for them to open up. And we walked in and the first thing I said was, I'm Dr. Meyer's patient. (laughs) 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 And they were fantastic. Like they got him on the phone. You, Mr. Dr. Wow. See, look, I'm not used to calling you, Dan. (laughs) Dr. (laughs) Meyer ordered an MRI and we set up an appointment to move forward because I'm sure he was able to see right away that while he had already done previous work on my left and my right knee, that my left knee was not in good shape, which we knew about, but we were hoping it wouldn't be just uh, four short years after his reconstruction of it. Okay. So how did you originally find Dan? Um, I had been referred to an orthopedic guy down here where I live in Dover. Dr. Myers practices further north in the Akron area. And he pretty much told me like after seeing me, oh, you're just not a runner. And I didn't take that news very well. And we like more or less fired him. And when I was really frustrated with that appointment, he actually referred us to Dan and said, why don't you go up here and see him. I've heard really good things. I've sent a couple of patients to him, but he didn't seem to really like have much drive in seeing me further or whatever. But oh my gosh, that was a godsend because I walked into your office, Dr. Meyer, and you like, you were great with me, but you like put your hand on Bill, my husband's shoulder that that first day of meeting us. And you looked at him and you said, don't worry, we'll get her back out on the road for all of your sake. Like you understood my passion and how it helped me stay sane for my family too. And like, that's just, we've been seeing him ever since. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, but before I talk to Dan, I'm, I, I want to chime in and say that Gretchen told me, Dan, that you took her seriously from the first time you met her, which also warmed my heart because I feel like so many doctors see someone like us, Gretchen, you know, I'm, I'm grouping us together as mm-hmm. kind of older, yeah, of course. you know, suburban moms who maybe run, you know, and do a little half marathon here and there. And, and they're not, you know, we're not making our career out of it. We're not super fast or anything like that, winning any money, but it's still really important to us. And I just really appreciated that you said that to me. And then obviously it's stuck in your mind because of the way that Dan treated you. So Dan, talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about that because I mean, I got to say, I think listeners will probably resonate more with the experience of you've got to stop running, hearing that from a doctor and not really taking them as seriously as you took Gretchen. Yeah, I guess before I even get into that, I have to, Gretchen is too humble to tell you how bad her knees were since she was a teenager. Okay. Um, so I would argue <laughs> that her her problems didn't start in 2021. She is just a tough cookie female who put up with very bad kneecaps and cartilage issues, arthritis and dislocations for years before she met me. Uh, so the, the initial, when I met her back in, I think, 16 or 17, was... Yeah, you got you know, short term on seventeen. Your short term on long term problems that is accumulatory, and there's more than one issue, and sometimes in people's knees. So that's an important part because she lived and ran through an issue that most people can't do. Even what I would call a runner, like a lot of my runners, can't live and function through. And that that's just the definition of tolerance in kind of a tough cookie attitude. So she wouldn't tell you that because she's too humble. But I know that because <laughs> I see these people all the time. And that's a huge piece of the puzzle because when it when it crumbles, it crumbles, especially in somebody who has lived with a difficult problem for years. So that's an important part, I think. Um, but I think from a treatment, I mean, I'm blessed. My dad did; uh, he's an orthopedic surgeon. He worked for 41 years in this practice. I got to work with him for 10 of those years, and he's not a runner, but he was a passionate guy. And you know, there's a way to talk to a patient constructively, to be honest, but to tell a patient. Hey, what are the goals here? Even his generations of surgeons, just like my current generation, I'm mid forties, the surgeon can still say, well, just don't do this. Just don't lift. Just don't work out. Don't bench. Don't run. And um, as an athlete myself, a recreational athlete, like I, I don't want that. And the golden rule applies to all aspects of my life, not just teaching my kids how to be good at school, but how I treat my patients. Um, and that's a simple thing that I, I wish it was done more frequently because the more I talk to people, yeah the more I hear that that's not done that way, um, which is just second nature to how I was raised. But I think having a wife that's a, she's always been a runner, you know, her dad's, Courtney's dad's midlife crisis at fifties was to pick up running. So he got into (laughs) marathon running in his mid fifties and Courtney was in her twenties, played in high school and and recreational soccer. And and so she picked it up, but she was what I would call it a true runner. I, I never enjoyed it, but I went through my own trials and tribulations of working out in different phases and on the boat, off the boat kind of thing. And, and it just extrapolated that to how I'd want to be treated myself. And, it, it, and I do that for everybody. And I mean, I love Gretchen like a sister, but I, I would treat everybody that way. And it's yeah. not hard. It just takes an, a little bit of time and a little bit of honest handholding because I'd want that done for my wife or my kids or my mom or my dad. So, yeah, but it's just kind of innate. I think I give my mom and dad credit to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think well, a lot of people are like, okay, um, how can I travel to, <laughs> to Akron to <laughs> see Dan? 
All right. Well, so, um, so it wasn't just the meniscus that we had to fix. So Gretchen, let's keep moving forward because I mean, you had two joint replacements within six months of each other, correct? Yes. Yes. That, that is correct. So the knee we knew from the beginning from 17, when Dan looked at everything, he was like, this is going to need replaced, but we're going to do what we can to push it off as far as we can. But when the meniscus tore, and he went in and did some trim work on it and cleaned it up. And he did all that in February of 22. And then by March, I was I started to limp. I went for a competition with my son as a chaperone. And all of a sudden, like the walking became impossible. And here I was like 44 falling apart. Like, why can't I walk? This is so weird. And by the time I got home, I took another trip to the the quick care clinic and they requested an MRI again. And we found that I had a cam lesion for a hip. So like the joint wasn't sitting properly in the hip socket. So like, I just basically have a, you know, messed up skeleton. (laughs) (laughs) Like I made jokes about, I need to contact my manufacturer because they didn't make (laughs) I didn't grow the right way. And so on July 1st of 22, we replaced that hip because my labral had torn and there was no repairing it. The hip was so gone. There was nothing there at all for him to work with. Uh, the initial doctor I'd been referred to that he was like, nope, out of my hands. And I was referred on to a different surgeon to do the hip replacement. And then I started recovering from that. And by October, the left knee, even though we had done, you know, we had done the work to make the meniscus tolerable, Dan had said there was no way I could, like he could repair it, that my knee would just tear it again. So it was a matter of how many band-aids did I want? And I scheduled another appointment. Gosh, I like I go see him and I cry every time I'm in the office with him. (laughs) (laughs) So he tolerates my tears very sympathetically and awesome and always gives me a hug. And we talked about doing a, a gel shot and he said he could acquire a sample. And so I left the office that day. I came home and I called and left Dan a message and was like, yeah, I like, I think it's time. And the best thing about that was like seven o'clock one evening, like a day or two later, um, you called me personally, Dr. Meyer, from your cell phone as you were on your way home after probably a really long surgical day. And you were like, that's the right decision. You needed to make that decision, but that decision needed to be yours. Like this is the next step, but I needed you to own it before I could move forward. Like you didn't even suggest it to me in the office. You didn't say, let's think about replacing it. I mean, you were willing to go along with whatever I needed, whatever I was willing to do, but you needed me to come to that conclusion. And that was that was an emotional decision. It's still an emotional decision. It is absolutely yeah. probably the hardest surgery I have had out of the, this was the fourth time you've gone into both my knees. <laughs> and and I still am reminded on an almost daily basis that this left knee has been replaced six months after my right hip was replaced. But I can move much better than I did in October, for sure. That's great. That's great. Well, Wow. Wow. I mean, that's just a lot. I remember talking to you, Gretchen. I'm just like two joint replacements in six months. That is crazy, crazy. So good for you for being here, first of all, and being able to talk about it. And Dan, like, 
obviously Gretchen's a little bit of a unicorn, I would say, because I imagine you don't <laughs> talk to many patients that have a situation like that, do you? I mean, you're gonna you're gonna think I'm crazy, but I probably have fifty people like Gretchen. Really? Um, wow. Okay. Yeah, I mean, my practice is high school, grade school, sports injuries to, you know, my parents' age group replacements. Um, so I kind of, I do knees and shoulders. And so I've chosen to be able to take care of, you know, all parts of the paradigm of injury. And I, I do cartilage transplants. I do all these crazy trying to restore mother nature. So I see people that are sent to me at all ages with easy, medium, hard, bad problems. So Gretchen's exact story of the trials and the tribulations and the meniscus and the hip. Yeah, that's not the most common paradigm. But I mean, there's a lot of young people that I see that I've tried to do the bare minimum and hold their hand through the process with an open, honest communication. And then it gets to the point where they're they're literally, like Gretchen would say, sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah. But that's that's unique to my practice. I have people in my group that don't see those referrals. And um, when you're part of the running crowd, when you're part of the CrossFit crowd, when you're part of the workout crowd, like you just, it just tends to accumulate, which is an honor. I mean, that these people trust me, but it can be difficult. Yeah. Um, not the patients, but the problems can be difficult. Sure. But I, sure. I don't, I tell everybody in the office, I saw a 78 year old today that I said, I don't care about your age. Age is irrelevant to me. It's all about expectations and activity. I mean, I've replaced knees in 19 year old, both of his knees. He's in medical school now. And I just replaced a 94 year old because she couldn't do her pickleball and tennis four days a week. Um, so age is irrelevant. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Are there any key things that you want runners who are struggling to know? Like I heard you say bare minimum, and I realize this is, I'm like trying to throw a blanket over very individual situations, but are there any things that you like, you find yourself saying again and again, as far as helping them guide them through their injury? I guess my first thing I have to do is decide with the history, with the exam, with whatever imaging x-rays, MRI I have, is it safe for that body part to go on getting abused or is it going to cause untoward damage that's going to make a future possible surgery either not doable or much more risky? That, that's what I have to do first. And, and I have to be the biggest advocate for the patient because we all have blinders on, no different than anything else in life. Sure. So once I realize someone like Gretchen who it may hurt her, she may not like what she's doing, but she's not causing untoward damage to the, to the knee that's the first discussion I have to have. And some people are, they just want to know that if they go beat up their knee, as long as they can live with it, whether that's a minimal problem or a bad problem, everybody's pain tolerance is different. They just want to know they're not going to do irreparable damage. And that can be a simple hand-holding 10-minute conversation. And that's all they need. They don't want a shot. They don't want a pill. They don't want a surgery. So that's the first and foremost. But that takes time, just like I'd one done with my knee or my shoulder. And that's, I think that first interaction of me getting inside the patient's head about simple thing called expectations, that's paramount. And once I understand what their goals are, what their drive is, what's their motive for being here, what are their passions, you know, is it, are they running for pace or train, or they just run in twice a week as part of a, you know, multiple aerobic approach? That's, that's the important part. And I think that's honestly, and I'm sure Gretchen would echo this statement is that's where I think a lot of doctors, let alone surgeons, because we're a different breed, don't take the time. And having a wife as a PT and a dad that did this, my little brother's a hand surgeon, my mom's a nurse, like that's the stuff that like, that's more important than being a good surgeon, in my opinion. We're going to take a break to hear from the brands that support our podcast. Please support them in return. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with Dan and Gretchen. 
you talked a little bit about recovery. Like when we talked earlier, you talked about like you're like 10% of the job, right? Whether they're going to surgery or they're just trying to heal an injury. I mean, the recovery and the team that you build around you is so important. I mean, do most patients, are they pretty um, reliable (laughs) with their PT (laughs) and the stuff that they're supposed to do? Or is that uh, frustration for you or a little bit of both? I think there's most patients, if we're going to talk about runners, most patients that are runners, whether they're the recreational trail runner that I would consider myself before before I injured my knee, or a disciplined five days a week, get up at five o'clock, like they're disciplined people. They don't need me to tell them to do their therapy. They have the goal of getting back to life. That's different than the 45-year-old you know, soccer dad who hasn't worked out in two years that has a traumatic injury that expects it all to get back to normal without putting in the effort. And that's not unique to guys or girls okay. or ages, but those are two different patient populations. So runners are easy. If anything, I, I got to be careful if I give them an inch because they take a mile. Uh, but I don't, I don't worry about runners holding up their end of the bargain, but I do tell all patients, whether that's a simple knee scope for a torn meniscus or a big ligament reconstruction, blah, 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 is that my job is the easy part. I've been on both sides of, of the scalpel, um, for knee and shoulder issues And my wife's job as a physical therapist, the coach, the loved ones, the athletic trainers dependent on the athletic setting and the patient, their job is harder than mine. And I think the ego gets in the way of the surgeon where they try to take control of things, or the ego can get in the way of the runner who quote unquote knows their body. When even my wife would say as a runner, like she needs to do the same type of therapy that a a non-therapist does. Um, Knowledge of your body doesn't mean you have knowledge of how the skeleton is supposed to move and all that. So ego gets in the way of a lot of stuff. And that just takes an honest breaking that ego in honesty for the betterment of both parties. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the emotional side of things. And if you tear up, it's okay. We've done that already on the first podcast, so it's all good, both me and the guests. So Gretchen, tell us what running brought to your life and how it feels right now without it. Okay. So yeah, definitely emotional. So running brought an outlet of like just a place that I could go and be on my own after two years of not sleeping, my daughter, her average wake time was eight to 12 times a night. Um, and I had a two-year-old. So like I was a walking zombie for those years. And it just, it gave me a break to get out and do something that I didn't think I was ever possible to of doing. Right. And it started with, a, I'm, I'm here at this driveway and I'm going to run to that stop sign and then I'm going to run to the next street. And, and then all of a sudden I had a a girlfriend tell me that, you know, Hey, why don't you come go do this, this race with me, this 10 K. And I was like, what? And she goes, you've been walking five miles. If you've been walking five miles for two years every day, you can run those five miles. And like, I just, every day I was proving and proving and proving to myself that I could. And every day I got stronger, the more it felt like my first marriage was falling apart. And there were other reasons for that. But as I went through the divorce and I started living on my own and being, you know, a part-time parent, it gave me that outlet to just get out and, and prove that I can do the hard things. And it gave me an amazing community of people. The people I have in my life now are a lot of them are runners and I know them from the actual another mother runner community. We had a friend that I met through another mother runner 
when my husband was undergoing cancer treatment up at the Cleveland Clinic, she had a doctor friend that was in the facility and she came and checked on us, this doctor that we didn't know just because my friend from Canada sent her to me or, you know, and she didn't even know my husband, you know, like it was, it's just been, gosh, they've been through so much with me. Um, I met my husband, right. And we got married and, and everybody was so supportive of that. It's always been what I've turned to in the past 13 years uh, to just get out and and be myself and not having that feel like I've lost a huge part of who I am. It became my identity. And the biggest thing I'm working through right now with that is that I know it's not like I'm everything. I was everything I am now before running Mm -hmm. just helped me see it better, but believing that is different than feeling it, right? Like I I know with my head that that's true, but my heart still is like, get out there, put your feet together and gosh, through COVID and the dog, like I stopped, I stopped doing actual races when um, everything started happening again, because I didn't take, I didn't want to take my dog. It's just him and I going out there and us conquering the world at, you know, whatever time in the morning it was, oh, dark 30. He's got a little light up vest that I put on him um, and he wags his tail. I put it on him for morning walks now. And the first time I did that, I got emotional because he's like, oh, are we finally going to go for a run? And I can't do it. (laughs) Not yet. Yeah. (laughs) And and it's probably not going to ever be like it was, but like I just, Part of me is still really struggling with letting letting it go completely. I'm like, all right, well, maybe maybe in a little bit more time when my knee is stronger and everything around it is stronger with more work, maybe I could try to go for like one mile or, you know, whatever. But like it, sure. it just doesn't feel – it just doesn't – my world doesn't feel the same. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. And I think, you know, you you were going back to you saying like believing it and feeling it are two different things. And I think that the thing that running gives us is a chance every day to like validate that and like check in and just give you that like, oh yeah, I am a badass. That's right. You know? Okay. So whatever else happens today, at least I've proven that to myself today. Yeah. Right. And even though you can believe it and you can write it in your journal and you can, you know, say it when you're on the Peloton or whatever, it just doesn't have that kind of same resonance. So I think that it has I think, you know, I think you said that really well, Gretchen. Thank you for sharing that. Has it gotten easier? Because it's been a while since you've run. Um, No. <laughs> no? Okay, that's but, fair. But, that's fair. I'm glad to hear. I mean, I'm glad that you're being honest. So, so, but that to say, though, the biggest thing that, Dan, you said to me in that appointment when I met with you right after I tore my meniscus was, you know, when we were talking about the Peloton and, and, you know, whether it be riding or rowing or whatever, you were like, Gretchen, it's time to really think about pushing for another passion, not to replace it, not to stop doing it altogether when it comes to running, but you need to start putting your passion towards other things. And the thing that I have missed the most is that run, like going out for that run, you don't want to do. And you go out and, oh my gosh, when you come back, it's the best run you've had in forever or maybe ever. Maybe all of a sudden what you didn't want to do gave you a PR or something, you know, and I've missed that feeling. And I've been trying to channel that energy, that same energy into my rides and rowing and actually achieved one of those days last week. And for the first time in literally almost two years, I came away from it 
like with that same kind of high, right? Like that, like, look what I could do. I haven't been able to do that in a while. And that was, that was reassuring, right? Like, so I kind of feel like maybe I'm starting to cross over that bridge and I can Mm -hmm. be more accepting of where I'm at. Um, I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm hoping yeah. that what, that was, what was the, what was the great workout? You want to know what, was it a ride or a row? Um, it was a row. Um, I did uh-huh. like 30 minutes just of an endurance ride. And one of my things is my drive on them has been awful. And I was almost perfect all around. And I like beat my previous PR and I was like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It was, it, it felt good. It felt good to do that. To push myself again. I've missed that the most, like just that pushing. pushing Yeah. 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 Well, so Dan, I imagine you go through plenty of boxes of Kleenex in your office, like Gretchen said. <laughs> she, I mean, and I, I, I always like appreciate doctors so much that I'm just like, I'm just going to cry and cry and cry, <laughs> but I'm still listening. Um, so I know you, you mentioned you hurt your knee. So you have been without running for a while. You want to talk a little bit about that. And then you want to talk a little bit about how you help patients navigate their emotions if, yeah. if you do that or you just kind of let it let it play out the way that it does i'm an emotional guy i mean i, I think I, I wasn't always that way but the more that i've gone through stuff in life and the more emotional so I, I i will shed tears especially what and i'll explain what i went through myself the last year and a half but like i'm not afraid to show emotions i, I was 15 years ago when i started because i looked at it like it was a, a judgeable weakness but now it's like i don't care if they want to judge me for me showing some emotion, like that's on them. Um, I, I can't hold back what's inside of me. And that, that could be from somebody having a, a loved one that passed away because of a bad trauma or somebody can't run anymore. I mean, those are all relative to that each individual. So that being said, my if you understand my workout history, you know, besides playing high school and college sports, like I was the chronic intermittent relapser of working out, right? So I would be great for <laughs> months at a time. And then I would have a bad couple of weeks of work with call and up all night and get off schedule because my schedule is the definition of you know unpredictable. And then I don't have the discipline drive like my wife does. I am forever jealous of Courtney's drive to do something every day. And my excuse is I have to get up at this hour and do this extra surgery and I got to go to soccer practice. And so I'm lazy about the excuse. And I've always been that way. And it's a, it's I'm still very healthy and active, but I, I'm judging myself because I'm not like my wife. That being said, when I went through, my, you know, Gretchen's issues were progressive and somewhat foreseeable, maybe not in her mind, but in a overall medical perspective. You know, I had a healthy, you know, no problem up until skiing with my kids. Um, and it was just one of those freak ski injuries. Um, I was out West skiing with my wife and friends doing much more dangerous, risky stuff that I've done for 25 years. And I'm just skiing at the local place, being a dad, protecting my then eight-year-old from going out the deep end and my long skis that weren't, you know, were too tight, not, not meant for that type of skiing, didn't detach. And I dislocated my knee and tore three of the ligaments, tore both meniscus, injured my nerve. And from a perspective of somebody who does, you know, hundred ACL surgeries a year, I'll see five or seven that are bad like mine. And it was one of those, like I knew once I looked at the MRI, I had yeah. an uphill battle and that was like, it's weird when you don't get to plan for it, you know, like it's one thing when you get to plan for things, it's not easy. I mean, Gresh doesn't go through an easy acceptance, but I, it was almost easier for me to have a really crappy injury and not be able to plan for it um, because I didn't have time to, to analyze it. Sure. So I went from working out, running, trail running, being a dad, playing soccer to 
I can't walk. And I had surgery three days later. My best friend did it. And there's different types of recovery. And mine happened to be the one that you can't walk on for six weeks and you can't bend it. I mean, it was the definition of like every checkbox of you don't want this, you don't want this, you don't want this. And Mother Nature gave me the perspective of seeing it all. You know, the, the, one of the best things to go through, but one of the hardest things. Um, but not being able to plan for it was very difficult. But it taught me a different perspective, not only of what the rehab intensity, how long it takes for a nerve to recover, what it's like to not put weight on earth for six weeks. I mean, all these things that my wife and I teach our patients every day. Yeah, uh, You can read that in a book and you can do it all day long, um, but it's nothing until you go through it. So I think it magnified my perspective of life's going to change. And I met Gretchen before my injury, you know, needless to say. Yeah. So I was giving that speech without having lived the speech. It was just from hearing it from patients and seeing what worked and how re- patients responded and how the positive feedback, the negative feedback. But it's a lot, it's a lot harder to practice what you preach, you know. And I was blessed to have a wife who helped me out. Were there any things that like coping that you did that like made you feel better? Or did you just kind of, yeah, I mean, because not walking for six weeks is really hard, especially when you're an active person. Yeah, the the not walking on it was for me, my arms are tired. It was hard to operate one legged. I mean, I took a week and a half off work and I was back in surgery and back in the office. It was just, you know, to get wheeled into the room on a stool that the nurses would push me in and I had to stand with an assisted device, you know, to be able to do a knee scope. Yeah, that was humbling. I think it was the emotional part that was harder. The physical part wasn't hard. I say that now, you know, a year and a half removed, but um, my church friends, my guy support group, I mean, my my family, my loved ones, like not a lot of 40 some year old guys talk about their emotions, you know, but to be able to have that like avenue and outlet of this sucks. How am I going to deal with this? You know, I'm worried about next week when all I got to do is worry about what's going to happen now. That was a that was a change in perspective. So I've extrapolated that learning experience to my patients and say, you know, yeah, you had a bad injury that I just did surgery on last week. This is your first visit back. Let's not worry about when you're going to get back to running or playing college football. It's all where you're at right now. And to have goals, but not have the expectation to plan those outcomes. Uh, and that is paramount. I can't explain that enough. Yeah, yeah. And that was important for me to do, let alone preach to my patients. And I've taken care of high school, college athletes, professional athletes in all different sports, senior Olympian run. I mean, you name it, I've seen it. And we all have the common goal of, of denial and of acceptance. And if I can hold someone's hand and tell them what other patients have taught me, or now that I've been through it, I mean, I give my own speech all the time in the office. It allows me to vent. It allows me to cope with it. That's for me selfishly. But I, I know patients appreciate it. I know moms and dads appreciate it. Yeah. And that's that's more than just being a surgeon, but that's what we're supposed to do. Yeah. Well, so how, I, and this, this might be too big of a question, but how do you adjust your expectations? Like, how do you not be like, okay, when can I get back to it? You know, I mean, that's so hard, right? Yeah. I think what I tell, what I've had to tell myself, because I'll, I'll pretend like I'm a patient now. I mean, I am. Like right now, I've I had a long road to recovery. I'm still a third of the way there because of the complexity, but I'm not back to running 20, 30 minutes at a time, let alone trails, let alone uneven ground. Like I'm doing an Orange Theory walk jog just to do interval stuff to get some impact back on my knee. So having a game plan with your therapist, uh, with your your trainer, your coach, but number one, not expecting to hold to that program because things are going to change. It's all fluid, you know, further in, more delayed. 
um, and sooner. It goes both ways. But I think having that discussion, and I always tell patients, you're going to tell me, yes, you understand now, but you're going to go home and you're going to be in denial of this whole conversation. And you're going to chew on this for a couple of weeks <laughs> and you're going to accept this at your own pace. Gretchen knows. I've told her a hundred times. Um, and I've been there myself, but trying to make somebody understand or make them accept it, like that's the worst thing to do. You got to get it on your own. Um, no different than when you decide to have a replacement, whether you're 35 or 75, but telling them what I went through, telling them what patients have told me, giving examples of how it's good to set a goal, but don't set the actual outcome right now. That's all I can do. But I think that honest communication of what I've been through or what patients have told me they've been through, that's what the patient wants to hear. They don't want to hear by this month, you're going to do this because then then that becomes self-fulfilling in a negative sense. But not being afraid to talk about it. Most surgeons, I'm sure most running patients will tell you, won't even address it. They'll just say, oh, you shouldn't run or it's going to be a year. Um, but you got to crawl before you can walk. I got to do a walk-jog interval while I'm doing the bike and my high intensity and my strength training before I can do a 10-minute run, before I can do a 12-minute run. So there's paradigms of going through. And I've, I've got that all from my wife. I mean, my wife is a physical therapist and a runner. That's a perfect combination for me to selfishly learn how to teach my patients how to get back into running, whether that's a replacement or whether that's a simple knee scope. But it's giving them a plan. So, you know, the whole yeah, percentage yeah. of doing the bike for 30 minutes and then doing it for 25 and doing a, a walk jog for five and doing that for a week or two and having that outcome, that's how you do it. Sure, sure. Okay, wow. So you just shared your a little bit of your routine. Gretchen, you said you're running and rowing. What else are you doing these days? Given that you're only, I want to just say that you celebrated your one-year anniversary of your new hip in July and your knee is, your new knee is like nine months old. So from our perspective, from my perspective, it looks like you're kicking ass, just FYI. Thank you. So, um, <laughs> but are you doing some strength training in there? What else do you do? Yeah. So I've never in my entire you know time of running these 13 years, I've never had any IT issues. Um, but I've been struggling with that as I've been recovering with the knee. So I'm doing a little less bike riding right now and uh, concentrating more on the strength and the rowing okay. to just strengthen everything around my knee. So everything stops overworking. You know, I have muscles that and tendons that are doing work that they shouldn't be doing because they've been weak or I haven't been focused as much on them as I should be in this recovery. So that's what I'm working on. Um, so I do strength three to four times a week, and then I do a row or a, like a light ride, like a low impact ride, because I had really aggravated my IT band um, back in August. It's easier that way to not do it. Sure. So yeah, like I'm trying to, I was right before it tore, my meniscus tour, I was on, on board with actually doing all the cross training things. It took me a really long time to get on board with that, but I was doing all of the things to stay strong and protect myself. I just did them too late. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, we wish you the best. Thank you. Thank you both for joining us. You both have been really, really helpful and insightful. And so last last question, Dan, if someone wants to find a doctor like you in their area, and any advice? Ask your friends, ask the gym people, ask the, the people on the trails. I think that's the best way. I mean, it's all word of mouth. It's all comfort. You got to find a doctor that's going to empower you to do what's best for you, not to make the doctor happy or the, the spouse happy. And you got to ask around. I mean, I think that's, that's the only way I can do it. You're not going to read it online. You can read reviews, but I think you just got to ask the people that are in the trenches. 
Um, and that's the best advice I can give you. Yeah, that's awesome. Perfect advice to end with. Thank you so much. Um, you both were great. Thank you. Thank you. Next week, we'll be talking to Kim Dawson, an expert in the field of sports psychology about coming to terms with the end of your running career. Our podcast today was produced by Barry Medore of Fire on the Bluff in St. Paul, Minnesota. Welcome to Simply Nourished on the Run. I'm excited to talk to dietitian Ellie Kempton today because, Ellie, we are diving into the blood sugar situation, right? It's kind of trendy. Am I right? Well, it is a situation. And yes, thank heavens, it has come to the forefront of everyone's attention. So I can't wait to dig into just the details because that's where the magic begins. Well, so tell us why blood sugar became trendy. Do you know why all of a sudden it's become you know, the thing that people are talking about, is it, is it the glucose monitors? Is it something else like, or is it just that we're just learning more and more? Well, you know, I think it's a few different things that are creating some synergy around blood sugar. First and foremost, I think wellness is just very trendy right now, right? There's yes. increased awareness around just how to biohack and optimize and quantify. And so in this era, when we're so potentially exposed to different ways to track things and we have more access to tracking, all of a sudden blood sugar is something we can tune into. So before you know it, you're walking down the street and you see you know, a handful of people checking their blood sugar when that did not used to be the case even a year ago. Agreed. Agreed. Well, so tell us, what is blood sugar anyway? Because I mean, honestly, I'm not even sure that I knew until recently. Like I, I, I just hear the word sugar and I'm like, oh, no, no, <laughs> no not know, that. No. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Well, that's the important question to ask, because before we get carried away, self-quantifying and tracking the data, it's important to just break it down to the simple facts around what it is and how it affects the body and why we should care about it. So essentially, in a nutshell, when you eat a carbohydrate, and a carbohydrate can come from many different sources. It can come from a plant like an apple or maybe some spinach, or it could come from a cute little gummy bear. But anything that has carbohydrates in it breaks down into a form of sugar called glucose. And that glucose eventually, after being digested in the gut, gets transferred into the blood, and the body responds to that by creating a hormone called insulin, and insulin lets that sugar into cells to create energy. So we have this energy exchange. You basically exchange the plant for glucose and glucose for energy, and it's a really cool exchange because the body literally survives on this energy. We cannot live without this energy. So we love the fact that carbohydrates have the capacity to go into the bloodstream after we've digested it and give us back a really cool gift, which is energy. And as we all know what it feels like to not have energy, we really have a lot to thank carbohydrates for this substrate. The problem occurs when our intake of carbohydrates is very inconsistent or our in take of carbohydrates is inadequately balanced with how much we need. 
So just to be clear, so protein and fat, the other two macronutrients, don't really affect your blood sugar or don't turn into energy? I love how your brain thinks. This is That was such a great follow-up question. So the other form of energy is fat, and that also creates energy. And the body is always switching to a certain extent between fat and sugar, depending on what's available. So if sugar is available, the body will prioritize using that first. Okay. Okay. So why does it matter? I mean, I used to say like my blood sugar is dropping. I'm not really sure what that right. meant other than like I was going to get in kind of a crappy mood, <laughs> getting hangry. Exactly. That's you just described why it matters when our blood sugar is inconsistently oscillating. It really affects how we approach life. Because if your blood sugar is low, you are literally going to put on blinders like a sugar monster and try to find any source of sugar you can find because your cells are starving. Similarly, if your blood sugar is always high, what you might find is just a subtle sense of anxiety or a subtle sense of kind of always craving sugar because you live on sugar. So the most important thing we can do is create an environment where our body uses the sugar it's been given, but then has time to re-regulate and re-stabilize before the next meal. And what that translates to is really consistent energy, cognitive clarity, repair, and cellular renewal. We age more gracefully when our blood sugar is more stable. Turns out that nine out of every 10 disease states are related in some way to blood sugar dysregulation. And that's because the cells are inflamed by this. The cells really struggle when blood sugar is really high one second and then really low the next second. In fact, the body's so intelligent about this that when blood sugar is oscillating, it calls in this hormone to the scene called cortisol to try to help it out. And we love cortisol because it is very energizing and it keeps us going. But when cortisol is being called to the scene to try to fix a blood sugar dysregulation, that's like kind of pouring fuel on a fire, right? Okay. Okay. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that for sure. Well, so how do you know if your blood sugar isn't stable? We're going to talk about how to kind of stabilize it in a little bit, including a little sneak preview of a challenge that we're going to throw out to the greater community at the end of September. But how do you know? I mean, yeah, you definitely, I think everyone, you know, you say the word hangry and I think everyone can like visualize a time when they were like, you know, clutching the steering wheel, like I've got to get home and get some food, you know, but, but what, how, what are other signs that it, your blood sugar might not be super stable? Yes. There's so many signs that can be very easily noticed and accounted for throughout the day if you're just privy to them. So the very first one is just craving sugar all the time. That can be a sign that your body has really adjusted and kind of acclimated to sugar as its main source of fuel. And that's a good sign that perhaps you're not even switching back and forth between the fuel sources, sugar and fat. Craving sweets after meals is a big one that really is indicative of blood sugar imbalance. Feeling really tired is another one. We talked about blood sugar being a very powerful prerequisite or stable blood sugar being a powerful prerequisite to energy and energy consistency. So if your blood sugar is unstable, you're going to feel tired specifically after meals and also just kind of that persistent fatigue throughout the day. 
You described one very well, the shakiness or the irritability, kind of that hangriness. That's usually a sign of low blood sugar. And then feeling just really fuzzy in the head. That's usually a sign that the brain is not getting adequate energy and it's being starved. And that causes a lot of poor food choices just because we don't know what else to grab to get rid of this brain fog and this fuzzy thinking. And then it really does just because of that cortisol link trickle down into anxiety. There's an anxiety piece that really plays a role in, or blood sugar really plays a role in the anxiety piece. And I notice when I work with my clients to stabilize their blood sugar, they come back to me so surprised that their anxiety is the first thing that they see dissipate. That's crazy. It's crazy. I, I mean, I love how complicated the human body is. And sometimes it kind of drives me a little crazy. You're no. just like, wait, how does this one thing affect, you know, this thing that feels like thousands of miles away and, you know, rationally? And it's not. Yeah. It's right. Like it's all it's just one big circuit board anyway. OK, so let's let's talk about some myths about blood sugar. I mean, I think one of the things that I, again, I think that the word sugar is kind of triggering at times because I just think like Snickers bar, which I realize mm-hmm. you've explained is not that. Um, but, you know, like what what are some myths that you hear people talking about, uh, not talking about, but maybe realizing that somehow yeah. internalizing? I don't know. Like maybe yeah. maybe my blood sugar is unstable. I'm <laughs> thinking very clearly. No, I get exactly what you're saying is that when you learn more about blood sugar, when you're testing it and you're feeling like you're understanding just what you said, which is how many facets of wellness blood sugar touches, it can feel like a big rubber band ball. But what the common conclusion that's drawn from this is, okay, if my blood sugar is unstable because of sugar, then I can't ever eat sugar in any form. Carbs must be really bad is the number one conclusion. And it makes perfect sense. I don't even, um, I don't shake my finger at that conclusion because it makes sense that that's the conclusion you would draw, but it's actually not the case. Instead of demonizing carbohydrates for causing instable blood sugar, there are some very precise and very simple ways that you can really just refine the type of carbohydrate you eat by actually unrefining them. But also there's some very simple tactics you can take to when you eat your carbohydrates and what you eat them with. And this is something I cannot wait to unveil for everyone in the blood sugar challenge. We're going to do a badass blood sugar challenge, which I cannot wait to lead. And In that challenge, I'm going to make it very clear how to make sure you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. By taking all carbs out, you actually do create a scenario where your cells could potentially starve. So the best thing is just to really simplify your approach and make sure you take maybe a savvy approach to your carbohydrate intake. I love it. I love it. So this challenge, it's the Blood Sugar Badass Challenge. I'm just throwing it out there. It is free and it's going to start on September 26th to the 29th. There's going to be a link in the show notes underneath where you can sign up. We just need to grab your email so that we can give you all the details on how to join and that kind of thing and what to expect. So just FYI on that. Okay. So we do have to eat carbs. We just have to be intentional about when and how we eat them, right? Yes. And I think you will be so pleasantly surprised to see how many easy ways there are to make your carbs work for you instead of against you. So we'll be unveiling all of that in the blood sugar challenge. The second myth that I think gets circulated just because again, it makes sense would be that food is the only thing that affects blood sugar. 
And that's just not the case. Um, you actually just described yourself the feeling you get when you maybe haven't eaten, but you feel like your blood sugar's all over the place. What do you think that could be from? Oh, definitely just like stress, uh, my anxiety, something, everything that's going on in my brain. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. That That is exactly it. Not just our food impacts our blood sugar, our environment impacts our blood sugar. So I love that you just described that. And it's very, um, it's a compelling for anyone who is watching their blood sugar to see how much leverage your perceived threat has on your physiology. And so anytime that I can tune someone into that, either they're watching their blood sugar with the continuous glucose monitor, or I'm just having them feel it, you know, feeling the impact of a stressful email or feeling an impact of a stressful commute. All of that has tangible impacts on your blood sugar. And I hope this feels actually quite empowering because it means you have two ways to really mitigate blood sugar dysregulation. You can focus in on the foods that you consume, but you can also focus in on how to create little pockets of grounded space to re-anchor that blood sugar. It's all within our reach. I, I love it. I love it. Yeah, because it is. Again, if everything is connected, which we kind of are learning much to our chagrin at times, you know, it's not just how many, <laughs> how how much roasted broccoli can I eat, right? It's got to exactly. be uh, like, it, and I can't do that and then just be stressed out about some random thing that, you know, probably doesn't even matter tomorrow, but today it's very, very important. It is today's lion. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> today's lion. All right. Well, so then, then the third thing that I think a myth is, and then I definitely feel this as well, is I know that people who have diabetes are very, very concerned, rightly so, obviously, mm-hmm. with their blood sugar. And it feels like, um, again, like bringing it to people who may not be diabetic, is that too much of a reach? Not at all. And that's the thing is I really think that everyone needs to just have a general awareness around their blood sugar. It is such a wellness benefit for anyone who has diabetes to really understand their blood sugar. I think it's actually kind of cool that if you are watching your blood sugar because you have diabetes, it's almost like you have a window into a facet of your body that many of us maybe never even look into. But I think that what's sneaky about blood sugar, if you don't have diabetes, is that you can go for many, many, many years not understanding your blood sugar and beneath the surface, it might be heavily dysregulated. So I am a big advocate for being in touch with your blood sugar because you don't always know where it is before you could even potentially be in a realm of pre-diabetic ranges. And that puts you back in the driver's seat. So as sneaky as it is, it can kind of feel like a duck syndrome where above the surface of the water, everything seems fine. But beneath the surface, there's mad paddling going on. And that's what I love about checking in on blood sugar and noticing what dysregulated blood sugar feels like and maybe even checking it, which I'll teach everyone to do in the challenge. Well, yeah, I was just about to ask you. So, so checking it, I mean, so this, we're not, this is not something where um, we're going to ask you to go get a glucose, a continuous glucose monitor, right? I mean, no, it's always an available thing, but I think you've got to do a few other things before that becomes your next jump. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Equipment is not going to be required in order for you to do this. No. What is required is a chance for you to commit to it 
because it's going to, I mean, we're going to, it's a three to four day challenge. I mean, we have a a wrap up call on the fourth day. So are people going to feel a difference in those couple of days, Ellie, would you say? That's the cool thing about blood sugar is you can feel stabilized blood sugar within 24 hours. You know what it feels like to wake up and have a lovely, say, pastry with a latte and feel like you've jumped on a blood sugar roller coaster within hours. And you also know what it feels like to have a really stabilizing meal. It does change within 24 hours. You don't have to wait for a few months to see this come to fruition. So in the challenge, you'll be given three days of very, very simple things. I'd say I did my very best to pick out the most impactful tactics for blood sugar regulation, like the things I find myself telling strangers at a party to do. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know how that goes. Everyone loves to do a little ask the dietitian session. And these are the things that I love to teach because I know I'm sending someone away with really impactful things they'll feel within the next day. And then that wrap-up call is time to talk about the testing or whatever burning questions you have. You basically have a full session with me to just ask what you want to ask and really dig into the details. I love it. So just a little forecasting or I guess a spoiler alert. Here we go. Spoiler alert. Better word. Um, It is not, you do not get to start the day with a latte and a pastry. That (laughs) is not day one challenge. That is not the day one challenge. Much again, much to my chagrin, because that's a pretty nice way to start the day. Um, Okay. So that link is going to be in the show notes. Again, Mm -hmm. it's it's a blood sugar badass challenge. The BSBA is what we're calling it. Um, Okay. So it's the it's September 26th to the 29th. It's the end of the month. So you've got plenty of time. Just sign up and then we'll be in touch as it gets closer. And, uh, but in, if this isn't for you, even just hearing about blood sugar and knowing it's on your radar, just this little snippet of information that you shared with us, Ellie, is super mm-hmm. helpful as always. So Yay. thank you very much for your expertise and your time. And I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, diving into the the red stuff, the blood sugar. Oh, <laughs> you and me both. This will be a ball. 